you have your Bibles, do you open them to Genesis? The words will come up on the screen, but I encourage you to read, follow along in your own Bible as well. We won't be reading it all at once as, as well, but uh, let's pray as we come to the Word of God. Almighty God, we love your Word. And I cry that you would open our eyes to behold your truth for us today in your words. Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak well of our Saviour Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Amen. In this passage, in Genesis 14, God's plan of redemption for his people, and specifically his promises to Abraham, they intersect with secular, national, or maybe better, tribal military history. Now we see this many times in the later history of Israel, where Israel's military conquests are blended in with challenges to Israel's faith. And Israel, in some cases, is told not to ally with certain nations around her. And it is a test of her faith and her trust in the Lord God. But this is the first time in the Bible that we see that. This is the first time in the Bible that we're told about military warfare and conflict in the context of the Middle East. And it will be many centuries on before we're done with the story of conflict between kings. In this case, from Mesopotamia, going into the land of Canaan, battling and trying to recoup particular natural resources and human resources for their own power, for their own wealth. But in this passage, the battle itself is really just a backdrop for a more important spiritual battle that's going on in the heart of Abraham. So as we look at this passage together, let us remember that everything is leading up to the spiritual battle that will go on in Abraham's heart at the end of the chapter. And I thought about, rather than read through the whole thing and then go back and trying to unpack it, I'll read a few verses at a time, as we sometimes do, pause, maybe just give a little bit of a commentary on what we've seen, and then step back at the end and give some lessons what the chapter has taught us. But this is God's word Genesis 14, we'll read the first four verses just to open up with. And there's, some, and there's lots of difficult names in here, so you can pray for me as well. I did practice them, but not always. it doesn't always work. In the, in the days of Amaphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eliezer, and this is the one I practiced, Chedelema, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of going. I'll say it differently later, I'm sure. These kings make war with Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these join forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Cheldamar, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. There's a pause there. That's telling the stories of a certain group of kings. 
There's an introduction of two different kingly alliances, two sides, if you like. Now, these aren't kings like the king or the queen of England or the king of Spain, but these are city-states that have primitive dwellings, maybe they have a wall around their city, and they have a leader who is the king, and then they have various alliances. And these first four kings are around Syria. So, for those of you who are good at geography, if you can picture the Mediterranean Sea, so you have Israel hugging the eastern edge of the Mediterranean, and up to the north, Assyria, which is Syria today, and then to the east, to Babylon, the king of Shina, that is Babylon, which is today Iraq. So that's the first four kings. And we can call them the Eastern Kings. They're the first four kings, the Eastern Kings. And then we're introduced to five, five kings, and they're from the southern part of Canaan, around the Jordan and the valley there near the Dead Sea. The Salt Sea is the Dead Sea, and it's called the Salt Sea for obvious reasons. the highest concentration of salt of any body of water in the world, 30%. My doctor once, I think it was about, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, said that I should go on a three-week cure to, um, to the Dead Sea. I wish I'd taken him up on it, but I didn't feel I could at the time. But it would have been quite nice. Because you can actually float on it. And let's call those five kings the Western kings. So this certainly has the ring of historical truth in all the details. And this is how things worked out in the ancient Near East. You had these various city-states kings and alliances, and these two western and eastern kings are going to do battle in the valley of Sidim, down by the Salt Sea. Before we get to the battle itself, we have some background information as the eastern kings march down to fight the western kings. So we read on that for 12 years they had served Cheldermar, and the 13th year they rebelled. Verse 5 if you're following along, verse 5. In the 14th year, Cheldemar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emin in Shava Kirathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Zayar, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. That's when I love my job when you read these things. But the big chief here is Cheldamar. And I'm sorry I'm not saying that correctly, but it works for me. The head of this eastern alliance of kings. So you've got the strong ones, and then the weaker ones are the five western kings. For 12 years they had served Cheldemar, paying him sort of tribute. In essence saying, you're greater than we are, so we will pay you this and be loyal to you, and we owe you taxation in order to let, in order to let us live in your presence. And in the 13th year they say, enough is enough. Enough is enough. And in the 14th year they rebel against him. And Cheldemar says... I'm going to get my king friends and we're going to come and fight you. That's, you know, that's kind of what's going on here. 
So they come down what is called the King's Highway from the north to the south. And along the way, they rampage against these other places and all these other peoples, defeating them, bringing them into, into captivity on their way to do battle with the five Western kings. It's like a really great adventure story, isn't it? It keeps you on the edge of your seat, sort of. Anyway, then in verse 8, we, get, we come to verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zebhoim, and the king of Bela, that is Zohar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Chelamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amphrafel, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the provisions and went their way. And aha, here we come to a verse, and they also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. So, Chaldamar and the eastern kings, the four, they trounced the five western kings of the Jordan Valley. And in the midst of their retreat, some of the troops are stuck in bitumen pits. Maybe they have waters, they have hills, this is the only way to go. These aren't little potholes like we see everywhere at the moment. No, these are bitumen pits, these are big pits. They try to go through them and they're trapped there. And it's not clear if the kings themselves, I do not think it is the kings, because the king of Sodom is going to appear later, but rather some of their men, the troops, fell into these bitumen pits. And the defeat was so overwhelming that the eastern kings took the possessions and the people and the food of the western kings. And in verse 12 we have the reason why we get in the story at all in the first place. Among the people they took was Lot. Abraham's nephew. Verse 13, Then one who escaped came and told Abraham the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcolon of Anar. These were our allies of Abraham. So there's a man who escapes in the midst of the carnage. He finds Abraham and tells him that Lot, his nephew, has been taken prisoner. Now, Abraham is a great man. He has great wealth. He has allies. He has, his three allies are Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and Ana. And these three men in their clans are the allies of Abraham the Hebrew. And it's the first time he's called a Hebrew, which is often given in the Old Testament when distinguishing God's people from other ethnicities. So Abraham the Hebrew was named because of a descendant of Abraham. Verse 14... When Abraham heard that his kinsmen, that his lot, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them back to Hobar, north of Damascus. Then he brought all, back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abraham leads 318, very, very specific number, 318 of his fighting men 
and goes after Cheldamath and this alliance of eastern kings. They go to Dan, which is in the north of the Promised Land. If you remember, Dan to Beersheba is the north to the south. And not only that, but they pushed them all the way back into Syria, north of Damascus. Conquered them, drove them out, reclaimed the possessions and the people and the provisions that had been taken from Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham has this victory as the ambush the kings at night. In verse 17... After his return from the defeat of Cheldamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And the king of Sodom didn't die in any of the bitumen pits. He is there. And Abraham has rescued the provisions and the people from Sodom that the eastern kings had taken. And now the king of Sodom wants to come out and talk to Abraham. But before he does... Before the king of Sodom comes, there is another king who wants to talk to Abraham. Verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek comes out of nowhere. He, he is both a priest and a king, and he is amazingly a worshipper of the God Most High, who Abraham is going to say is Yahweh. Melchizedek and Abraham worship the same God, the creator of heaven and earth, Abraham's God. And Abraham recognises that Melchizedek is a great priest and a great king and his superior. So he gives Melchizedek a tenth of all his possessions. So Abraham meets Melchizedek. Now re-enter the scene in verse 21, the king of Sodom. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Ana, Eshkol and Mamre take their share and may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and errant word. So the king of Sodom comes and tries to make a deal with Abraham. Because Abraham is the victorious one, isn't he? He is ultimately the victorious general in chapter 14. So Abraham has a right to the plunder from the victory. The spoils of battle belong to Abraham. But Abraham says, I'm not going to take a thing from you, Sodom. My men are hungry, let them eat food, and let the, the men who come with me take their share, but I will not take a thing, a bootstrap, a shoelace. I will not take a shoelace from Sodom. So what, is, what does this have to do with Genesis? What does this have to do with the Bible? How does it impact you and I and our lives? Four lessons. Four lessons. 
We see here wonderfully in Genesis 14, and I'd love this to give, to give you backbone and strengthen your faith, the promises of God can never be stopped. The promises of God can, will never be stopped. We, we saw in Genesis 12, 1-3, when God came to Abraham in the Ur of the Chaldees, and he pronounced, if you remember, that sevenfold blessing. In, in verse 2 of chapter 12, I will make of you a great nation. Well, that was a promise, and this is happening. Abraham has conquered the region's superpower. He conquered those four kings who had defeated the five kings. But not only, not only that, on the way to the battle, those five kings, <coughs> the four kings had captured all those other lands and peoples. They, they're the big impressive nations of the region. But, El, but Abraham, with his stealth and his strategy, with 318 men, routes them all. Abraham is becoming a great nation which God had promised in chapter 12, verse 2. The second promise of that sevenfold blessing was that I will bless you. God promised to bless Abraham. Well, that's surely happening. It's almost like literally, time after time, there is too much blessing for Abraham to take in. Everywhere he turns, there is someone who wants to give him possessions or provisions. The land, by the end of Genesis 13, God says, walk in it. And by chapter 14, these kings have been driven out. It's going to be Abraham's. God is blessing Abraham. God promised, and God keeps his promises. The third of those seventh-fold blessings was in Genesis 12, verse 2, I will make your name great. Well, Abraham's name is surely great. Because by the end of chapter 14, you have kings who are waiting in line to talk to Abraham. God promised Abraham, fourthly of that sevenfold blessing, you will be a blessing. Abraham is certainly blessing Lot. Twice he has been a blessing to his hapless nephew, Lot. Abraham was the patriarch, if you may. He had the, he had the um, right to choose first. But he said in chapter 13, Lot, you choose. Lot chose poorly. If you remember, he moved his tent as far as Sodom. And they also took Lot, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions. So Lot has already moved from bad to worse. First of all, he went to the land of Sodom, which had a reputation for being wicked. But by the time we get to chapter 14, he's right in the city. And Abraham, who had blessed Lot by giving him the first choice, now blesses him again by rescuing him. God promised, if you remember from 12, chapter 12, verse 3, the fifth of those seven blessings, promises, I will bless those who bless you. That is happening. Everyone who is on Abraham's side is getting blessed. If you're at the end of chapter 14, you have those Mamre, Eshkol and Einar are getting the spoils of war because they had aligned themselves with Abraham. And God had promised, sixthly, that in chapter 12, verse 3, and him who dishonours you I will curse. That seventh-fold promise of God, if you think of Chaldemar and his alliance 
of Eastern kings. If they had stayed away from Lot, they would have been victorious. They defeated all these other people. And it is as, it's as if in God's divine economy there is, there is this trap called Abraham. Don't mess with Abraham or his family. Even his nephew, who has made so many wrong choices. Because once they took Lot, that is when they dishonoured Abraham. And then they were cursed, so they are routed. And the last of those sevenfold promises in chapter 12, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the blessings of Abraham are radiating out to more and more people. And even the undeserving king of Sodom gets blessing. Why? Because of one, one of Abraham's family lived in Sodom. And we know that the end of Sodom is coming in a few chapters. But the end of Sodom will not come until Abraham's family have left Sodom. He was the protection there, the blessing, because of the connection to the promised line, the connection to Abraham. Brothers and sisters, we see again and again the invincibility of God's promise. I said when we were in Genesis 12, we'll see in Genesis 12, 13 and 14, three scenes where the promise of the land seems threatened. The promise will be threatened by famine. The promise is threatened by the conflict with Lot. And the promise is threatened by these eastern warring kings. And what happened after each of these threats? Well, just think about it. Threat number one, the famine. Ab Abraham and Sarai went down to Egypt. They came out wealthier than when they started the famine. Threat number two, family strife. Lot chooses poorly, Abraham gets the better land as a result. Threat number three, international war, and by the end of the scene, Abraham has victory and wealth at his disposal of nations beyond the Jordan. Every threat to the promise of God has resulted in greater blessing to Abraham. I wonder if that's how you see threats and obstacles in your life. Famine? Trust God. Our family is fighting. God has something good. The whole world is at war. I cannot wait to see what God is doing. It's, it's difficult. In, it's not right to be victorious or triumphant. I know a guy who used to be, I used to work with, who everything was victorious. Even when he was really depressed, he was victorious, you know. And that isn't the truth of our reality. So I'm not saying that we should be always going around like that. But there is a sense that even in the midst of the pandemic, we cannot wait for what God is going to do. And that, you know, and that doesn't mean that, we, you know, that we're rejoicing or anything like that, but we're trusting. We're trusting. Because time and time there is a threat to the promise, and God shows that his promise is unstoppable. God's promise is unstoppable. What promise are you struggling to believe in? What promise are you struggling to believe in this week? Are you struggling to believe that God will never leave you or forsake you? Or are you struggling to believe that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? That he will work out all things, all things for good, even the pandemic. For those who love him. Are you struggling to believe that you are a new creation? 
and the old has passed away and the new has come. That the Lord of all, of all the earth, the judge of the earth, will surely do what is right. What are you struggling to believe in this week about the promise of God? Well, let me assure you from the words of Scripture that the promises of God are invincible, unstoppable. They're bigger than you. They're bigger than your fears. They're bigger than your stress. They're bigger than you. The promises of God are invincible, unstoppable, and whatever potential obstacle is in your way, you can be sure by faith that God has the means to bless you even more the other side. This is definitely not health and wealth. I promise you that. This is not health and wealth prosperity. Our blessing is not identical to Abraham's blessing. I can assure you we're not all going to be rich. And we're not all going to have children when we're 100 years old. Lord, may it not be. No, the promises are transposed into a New Testament key. But they're nonetheless invincible and unstoppable. That's the first lesson. The second lesson is that the life of faith does not look exactly the same from day to day. Look at the three threats. Abraham goes down to Egypt. He doesn't acquit himself well. He's too scheming. He's too conniving. The Lord, he thinks the Lord needs help with his promise. So he had his wife Sarah lie and say that she was his sister. But God, despite Abraham, blesses him. But Abraham tried to do too much. Abraham tried to do too much to help God fulfill his promise. Second, the second threat, Abraham's learned his lesson. Yeah, with the conflict with Lot, there's conflict here, I trust you. Let Lot choose, and I will take what is left. Now, you might be tempted to conclude after the second threat, that means that the life of faith means we're always passive. Then you have the third threat, and Abraham is decisively active. He's a man of action. He went to war to rescue Lot. He doesn't fight for the promised land, he's not fighting for the land, but he does fight for his family. And his military campaign was an act of his faith in God. And as I wrote those things down, I thought it would be nice if we knew how to live a life of faith whether it was one or the other. It'd be really nice to know, wouldn't it? And, you know, just relax. You know, stop trying to do so much. That's faith. Well, sometimes it is, clearly. Or, get your act together. Go, dream, plan, act. That is sometimes faith. And it takes wisdom to know when faith means doing less than you want to do, and when faith means doing more than you thought you were able to do. The second threat, Abraham decides, I'm going to do less than I might want to do. So he was passive. And the next threat, he was going to venture out with only 318 men to take on those, those kings. What does walking by faith look like for you this week? The first lesson you know, you know, the promises of God. What promises are you struggling to believe in? What does walking by faith look like for you this week? People are going back to school tomorrow. What does it mean to walk by faith? 
Is it a call to rest, relax, settle down, let things play out, God knows what he's doing? That may be the life of faith for some of you, but it may also be a call to stand and fight. Because that is also a life of faith. And it takes wisdom to know when God wants you to do one or the other. Both is the life of faith. The life of faith may not look the same for you this week as next week. But it is trusting God. And the third lesson is the blessings of God may come through the world, but they never entangle us with the world. I... It's interesting, because why did Abraham accept the wealth from Pharaoh, king of Egypt, when he didn't deserve it? You remember, in, back in chapter 12? He got it from lying. But he won't accept a shoelace from the king of Sodom, even though it was his rights as the victorious military leader. He gets rich from Egypt, he refuses to get rich from Sodom. Why? Well, one reason is that Abraham doesn't want anything to do with such a despicable place. Genesis 13, 13, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And in chapter 14, the king of Sodom is clearly a self-centred e egotist. If you think about what Abraham had done for him, you know what Sodom should say to Abraham? Thank you. But the first words of the king of Sodom well. Think about the first words out of the mouth of Melchizedek in verse 19. The first word is, blessed. What's the first word from the king of Sodom in verse 21? Give me. He'd been defeated. Abraham had saved him and saved his people. And his first words should be, thank you, but instead he says, give me. And the other reason related is that Abraham is determined not to be entangled with Sodom in any way, shape or form. 22, I lifted up my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, a sign of taking an oath. And Abraham understands that if he's to take something from the king of Sodom, even though he has a right to it, he is the one who won the plunder back. The king of Sodom would think of Abraham as somehow being in his debt, as having something over him. Abraham doesn't want to attribute any blessing to Sodom. It is not that Egypt was a great place, but the king in Egypt at that time seemed to have had something like a moral compass and did not have at that time the reputation that the king of Sodom had. And Abraham said, I will not be entangled at all with the king of Sodom. There are times when it is so clear, like getting rich from Sodom, that we ought to say like Abraham, I am not going to take a shoelace from you. It could have to be doing with accepting donations, for example, you know, where, you, you know, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't, there's no way that you would take donations from something which is so obviously evil. You know, if, you know, if a pawn king came and offered you money, you wouldn't take it. Because it was, it's, it's getting rich on the back of evil, it's clear. Abraham said, I cannot be entangled with you and what you're about in any way. It looks like blessing, but I will trust God to bless me another way. And the last lesson is, no matter how great you may seem in the world, there is one greater and deserving of tribute. And this is really the main point, and it's a beautiful point. It's a beautiful point, it's a beautiful passage. 
you think the climax would be after Abraham's daring rescue, the five weaker kings rebel against the four stronger kings and the eastern kings defeat the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and seize their goods and food and take away their men and women and Lot and his possessions are taken away and Abraham gets 318 men and in the middle of the night he surprises them and he rides off on their camels into the sunset. That should be the climax of the story. Except that is not what the story is about. That's not why it's here. Because we have a mysterious man who comes out of nowhere, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a priest and he's a king. And he's the king of Salem. Melchizedek. And his name and his title point to some really important realities. His name and title express that which is right and good. Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. Who is he? He is the king of Salem. And Salem is a shortened version of Jerusalem. He is the king of Jerusalem. But it's shortened in such a way to emphasise that he is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. Let me remind you of a couple of interesting things. First of all, this is the first time someone is called a priest in the Bible. Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God. Let me also remind you that David would be the first Israelite to sit on Melchizedek's throne. There is sweet and rich truth in that, that David would be the first Israelite to sit on Melchizedek's throne. You'll remember that Jebus which became Jerusalem, the city of David, wasn't conquered under the time of Saul. It was conquered under the time of David. So David was the first of the Israelites to sit on Melchizedek's throne. And Christ is the last Israelite to sit on Melchizedek's throne. There's a great deal of truth in it, but it's no wonder that the author of Hebrew says that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. And Abraham ties to him. And of the spoil that he brings back, Abraham gives a tenth to Melchizedek. We know from Hebrews 7 that Melchizedek was a type of Christ. I do not believe that he was a theophany, an appearance of God. No, he was a real, literal king, a priest, a human being. But he was a type. Meaning what we see and find in this mysterious man out of nowhere called Melchizedek will find its fulfilment in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus would be the priest and king. Jesus had neither beginning nor end. That is what the writer of Hebrews stresses. Melchizedek just comes out of nowhere. We do not know where he's from. We do not know about his ancestry or his family line. We don't hear about the rest of his life. He says he is like Jesus in that he has no beginning. He has always been, he has no end. There is no end of his days. What else do we see about Jesus and Melchizedek? Jesus came to bless the children of Abraham, just as Melchizedek did. Jesus comes to us with a meal of bread and wine, just as Melchizedek. And here you have Abraham worshipping in the presence of the priest, of the Most High God, and he gives him a tenth of all that he has. And then you think about the contrast between Abraham with Melchizedek and Abraham with the king of Sodom. Abraham would not take a shoelace from Sodom. 
let alone give anything to Sodom. But here you have Melchizedek. Abraham will take blessing from Melchizedek. Abraham will take food and wine from Melchizedek. And he will give him a tenth, recognising that he is a true priest. He is a godly king. Unlike the king of Sodom, he is deserving of tribute. And there is one other time in the Old Testament we hear about Melchizedek. One other time in the Old Testament. And it comes from the chapter in the Old Testament that is quoted more than any other chapter in the New Testament from the Old Testament. It's not Isaiah 53. It's not from Genesis. It is a Psalm 110, 1 and 4. The Lord says to my God, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews shows us that the line of priests from Aaron, they made intercession. They had to make intercession for their own sins and it was never done. We need a different priest. We need a priest who has a whole different lineup than Aaron. And there is a priest after the order of Melchizedek and he can render the priestly service of the Arianic priest to be irrelevant. We don't know how much Melchizedek operated in the minds and the hearts of God's people. He's in Genesis 14, Psalm 110. But he must have been somewhat in their imagination because Hebrews says so much about him. Melchizedek, where did he come from? Where did he go? Who was he that even greater father Abraham gave him tribute? Can you imagine the children of Israel telling their children about Melchizedek? They must have done because he's so much in Hebrews. You think of those young Israelites asking their parents, do you think there's someone like that to come? Do you think there's someone like that to come? Someone who's both a priest and a king? Maybe also a prophet? And he would come. And unlike Melchizedek, who would come and disappear, he would stay forever. And after all those centuries, they could say, son, daughter, yes. There is one. Brothers and sisters, there is one. There is one who has come. There is one who has come after the order of Melchizedek. And he hasn't come and disappeared. He's without beginning and without end. And he's deserving not only of our tribute, but of our worship. And we gather today to worship him. His name is Jesus. May the Lord bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.